0: All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is the intro for episode 65. Jason Lingren and I on the tale of the last show, which was history was is a lie agreed upon, wanted to kind of go with the Jesuits and Benedictines, um, which played a prominent role, apparently, uh, in the rewriting of history sometime around the Middle Ages, we are surmising. This episode became a real problem for me. You know, I started out a while ago ordering, which I do a lot, um, ordering a book called The Jesuits, which was on the New York Times bestsellers list. The reason I do this is because this is kind of the accepted mainstream history, and I try to compare and contrast it with other research we've done and a more realistic view of things that we try to accomplish in the course of things. In doing this, this whole episode became a real problem for me. Um, Jason is going to run down the timeline, as he always does, and it got to the point in the research where almost nothing I read I could accept. It seemed like one whitewash after, you know, conflicting information, not jiving with things we already knew to be true. As an example, in one of the histories, they go on and on and on about how the church hated Freemasonry. um, And I started to go down this road in the historical timeline when, in fact, we have done shows that show that the king top three guys in the country were absolutely using Freemasonry and that this information was being encoded into what the Vatican was pumping out. We've done this on a number of shows, and so it's a conundrum. Where do we go from here? So you try to find some kind of a logical link to how the Freemasonry got into things, and you just can't do it as far as I can tell. Uh, in researching the Jesuits, if I wanted to find something that was negative or outlandish, you can certainly find that on the conspiracy websites um, and then try to contrast it with what you know. And time and time again, what it basically came down to is as Jason rolls down the timeline, which he always does, um, it all seemed like nonsense. Just whitewashed, made up, much of it encoded nonsense. And I had real problems with this episode to the point where I may not try to do episodes in the future in this vein, but we'll just have to see where it goes. Anyhow, um, I do the best I can here. I may not bring as much as I normally do, but as usual, Jason is bringing the accepted timeline from the false history narrative that we have. Um, So there it is, man. Let's jump into episode 65, and next week we're going to be back on track and going in a wholly different direction. So there it is, man. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 65. I have Jason Lindgren with me. Uh, you know, this last episode that we just covered where we were talking about history being allied, agreed upon, we got so heavily into like time, artificial time, natural time, these kinds of things. Um, The Jesuits and the Benedictines had popped up a lot in the research we did, um, and we're going to try to tackle this. But there's some real problems because just let me say from the outset for the one millionth time on this show, history is a lie agreed upon. And what we're going to do is go down a timeline um, that is basically acceptable to a place called the Vatican. The problem here is this, you know, I even got books Uh, a myriad, you know, one from the New York Times bestseller entitled The Jesuits. And the more I read through it, the more of a whitewash. It, it, It just jumped out at me that this is complete whitewash. And as I logically broke down some of the historical things they were saying about the Jesuits, it just didn't wash with other things that I know. And so the real problem with this episode was, Uh, As you go to look at the Jesuits or the Benedictines, uh, if you want to find something bad about them, you can certainly find a place that will fuel that fire. If you want to try to find some kind of a traditional history, you can find that. It's a total conundrum, in other words. So what Jason and I are going to do is break down the timelines, but we're going to try to insert in between these supposed historical accounts um, things that we think matter. So anyhow, welcome, Jason. Hello, Crow. So what are you thinking about this, man? This is kind of a tough road to hoe, is it not?
1: Yeah. Well, what I think about this is we we just can't be sure. Y- you can have two different extremes on positions here when you look at this this information. And I did my best to, to go through sources. And uh, basically what I came up with is I don't know if how much of this is even remotely real and that a lot of these figures are probably made up characters. But then again, who can be sure?
0: Right. This is the real problem. And while if we had weeks and weeks and weeks to prep for a show like this, we might be able to make some conclusions that might relate to what you just said. But the truth of it is, as we were doing past episodes, it became pretty clear uh, that the Benedictines and the Jesuits were likely right there uh, on the front line of rewriting history. Um, In the last show, I even pointed out that it looked to me – As an educated guess, that it was quite possible that the Jesuits were the brains, the authority, and the hidden hand behind the Benedictine scribes who were pumping this stuff out. Um, That's one supposition that we put forward. But anyhow, um, we got a lot of timeline to go through here. um, And in some points, I think it'll help if we stop and kind of try to show what appears to be encoding. You know, you're about to get right into St. or Benedict, St. Benedict, uh, who supposedly founded the Benedictine monks. although you're going to show both sides of that coin as well, who has a twin sister named Scholastica. You know, there there's prime encoding there. But anyhow, I'm just going to throw this right over to you and let you start plowing. Right,
1: so starting with the Benedictine monks, because that's supposed to have happened first. According to mainstream history, the Benedictine monks have their origins with the monastery established by Benedict of Nursia, who later became... St. Benedict in the town of Subiaco, Italy in 529 AD. This would be the first of 12 monasteries that he would found. All the following about him is said to have been written down by Pope Gregory I in his four book series called Dialogues. The authenticity and accuracy of these works has been a subject of much debate. So he was the son of a Roman noble of Nursia. A traditional story about him says that he has a twin sister, Scholastica. She would go on to be another saint around 500 benedict is said to have been so upset with the immorality of society while living in rome that he gave up his studies there at the age of 14 and chose the life of a monk in the pursuit of personal holiness whatever that means having only taken his old nurse with him for a servant now taking someone with you as a servant implies to me that you at least have some money to your name indeed they settled in a place called enfide if i'm pronouncing that correctly i'm not sure A short distance from Enfide is the entrance to a narrow, gloomy valley, penetrating the mountains and leading directly to Subiaco. The path continues to ascend, and the side of the ravine on which it runs becomes steeper until a cave is reached above, which the mountain now rises almost perpendicularly. While on the right it strikes in a rapid descent down to where, in St. Benedict's Day, 500 feet below, lay the blue waters of a lake. The cave has a large triangular-shaped opening and is about 10 feet deep. On his way from Enfide, Benedict met a monk, Romanus of Subiaco, whose monastery was on the mountain above the cliff overhanging this cave. Romanus had discussed with Benedict the purpose which had brought him to Subiaco and had given him the monk's habit. By his advice, Benedict became a hermit and for three years, unknown to men, lived in this cave above the lake. One day, the devil brought before his imagination a beautiful woman he had formerly known, inflaming his heart with strong desire for her. Immediately, Benedict stripped off his clothes and rolled into a thorn bush until his body was lacerated. Thus, through the wounds of the body, he cured the wounds of his soul.
0: Dun, dun, dun. He's got a cured soul. Um, So much here, Jason, so much here. And this, I'm going to start to point out the conundrum. Um, at the very opening of the point you just made, you're talking about someone opening 12 monasteries and then dropping the name Pope Gregory the I right behind it. If we remember from the last episodes, it was Pope Gregory the 13th that helped jack up the calendar, also attributed to Julius Caesar, but we can't get away from every time we see these encodings in this kind of a religious history. There's 12 monasteries here. So again, are we looking at the 12 months? Are we going to play the sun in a month game here? And I don't don't think there's really getting any away from it. Um, I haven't had time to really dig in and look at all the little points that you've had here to be able to make very substantial claims. But even if we're to take his, a Benedictine supposed twin sister named Scholastica, of course, everyone can get the word Scholastic out of that. Um, if you if you do a simple look up on her in Wicca Say Anythingpedia, um, under her picture in Wikipedia, there is a highlighted, unclickable label that says virgin. So what are we looking at here? In my view, you're looking at an encoding. You're looking – at the idea of the the constellation, the zodiacal sign of Virgo the Virgin, or the sun, in that month. Um, I would have to look more to be able to really identify the tells. But again, St. Benedictine is openly admitted here as being a rich person, if he ever existed, because he has a nurse who is also his servant. So again, what are we looking at? And as you went through the names of places, I was trying to look them up as quickly as I could, what you called infidi may, may be... And fide, maybe enfide, or the Latin idea, which is also drawn in the United States Marine Corps, um, semper fidelis, fidelity, looks like it may be attached to that word. And again, I would have to look deeper. But by the time you get to the end of the bullet points, here we are. We're back to a story, which we've heard from so many different religions, of the hermit in the cave, up there meditating. But in this particular case, one day, sun makes a day, the devil shows up right so there's the whole devil story here as we've covered in many previous episodes the devil is almost always encoded as the sun at the spring or i'm sorry at the winter solstice or at its lowest point on twelve twenty one. of course also encoding 33 um we've got the whole flaming heart thing going on there so i mean that's my take jason um <laughs> what, what do you think about all that I, you just don't hear
1: about people being visited by the devil and having visions and things, you know, in a realistic context. This sounds more like superhero stuff.
0: Right. Um, This is the problem. By the time you start getting the cave up on the mountain where, you know, the the yogi or the hermit is going to go, you're already raising an eyebrow. Um, But we need to get further in so people can see. I mean, I think at one point you're going to point out that it doesn't even appear in the histories that were handed that Benedict even wanted to start an order called Benedictines.
1: No, he didn't want to start an order at all, according to the mainstream history. But Yeah, so I'm, I'm just going to let you keep
0: pushing through. There's so much here.
1: There, There is. Benedict spends the next three years being a hermit and expanding his spiritual self, having only occasional contact with the outside world. Romans would visit him and any others he encountered are said to have had great respect for him. After the death of the abbot in the local monastery, he was begged by the local people to take his place. Benedict was acquainted with the life and discipline of the monastery and knew that their manners were diverse from his, and therefore, that they would never agree together. Yet at length, overcome with their entreaty, he gave his consent. The experiment failed, and the monks tried to poison him. The legend goes that they first tried to poison his drink. He prayed a blessing over the cup, and the cup shattered. Thus, he left the group and went back to his cave at Subiaco there lived in the neighborhood a priest called florentius who moved by envy tried to ruin him he tried to poison him with poisoned bread when he prayed a blessing over the bread a raven swept in and took the loaf away from this time his miracles seem to have become frequent and many people attracted by his sanctity and character came to subiaco to be under his guidance having failed by sending him poisonous bread florentius tried to seduce his monks with some prostitutes to avoid further temptations. In 5.30, Benedict left Subiaco. He founded 12 monasteries in the vicinity of Subiaco, and eventually in 5.30, he founded the Great Benedictine Monastery of Monte Cassino, which lies
0: on a hilltop between Rome and Naples. <laughs> the great casino in the sky um this this is propaganda so much of what you just read is propaganda religious propaganda you know uh you you even to some degree find this idea of poisoning in the story of the buddha to some degree and i'm not drawing an allegory here but the death of the buddha is endlessly argued whether it was poison mushrooms or these other things um but here uh, you have a man who's going to pray away the poison that he's being fed um starting to firm up the idea that he's a special religious important person in religion um i mean what do you when, when you go through these points what are you thinking
1: well it, again it sounds more like superhero stuff like like this is a fantasy tale
0: Uh, there's no getting away from it. Um, And to me, that is propaganda. And when there's so much propaganda in the acceptable history that some, you know, the Vatican would back, you begin to see the construct that we covered so widely in our last episode. What we were saying, basically history is a lie agreed upon. Well, here's case in point. Um, Is there anyone listening that wants to take this as a real factual, no nonsense history? Um, Or is Jason a little closer to the mark where this looks like, you know, comic superheroes to me? I think Jason's a little closer to the mark here. Anyhow, back to you.
1: So some other things about him. During the invasion of Italy, Totila, king of the Goths, ordered a general to wear his kingly robes and to see whether Benedict would discover the truth. Immediately, the saint detected the impersonation and Totila came to pay him due respect.
0: So here we have the building of the myth. I mean, the further we get in this, you're going to see these amazing tales and these kind of mythical you know, yarns being woven to uh, further place Benedict as a very important religious man in the history that's being kind of cobbled together here. Uh, There it is. Go ahead.
1: And let's not also forget that the time period this is supposed to be occurring in falls within that timeline that the New Chronology folks say didn't actually happen in the first place.
0: That's right. Um, And it's a good thing you pointed that out for people who may have missed the last episode, uh, it appears. And we brought to bear quite a bit of evidence in our last show, uh, the show called History is a Lie Agreed Upon, episode 64, um, where it appears that somewhere – and I'll just put a random date on it, around the 1100s, we'll call it the Middle Ages, uh, modern history was rewritten, and whatever came before was swept away. Uh, In the course of covering all that, the Jesuits and the Benedictines played a role of some sort, although it's nearly impossible to know for sure, and that's exactly what Jason's pointing out here. So if in fact it's correct that they were involved in the writing of a new chronology, um, a man named Scalinger or Josephus, who was probably a Jesuit at the center of that, um, why wouldn't they be rewriting their own history? Um, it just, you know, if they were truly telling you what they were doing, if this is correct, they would look like a bunch of scumbags. So that's what's being pointed out here. Anyhow, Jason.
1: And, and people would say, well, why would they do that? Well, it's to make the Catholic church look that much stronger and older and more powerful than it actually was.
0: Right. And I think the the quote from uh, Orwell, who wrote 1984, really begins to speak to this. Um, Do you remember verbatim, Jason? Do you remember the Orwell quote? He who controls the past controls the future. He who controls the present controls the past. I may not have that exactly right, but I mean, that's that's, it. it. (laughs) Yeah, that's a prime reason for controlling the narrative, controlling the historical story. It is the ultimate form of propaganda. After all, if we look at the history of the world we're given... I remember when I was younger, I always thought, well, why don't we learn more about China? You know, we're told they invented the wheel, the gunpowder, all these things that came out of China. And yet the history of China is almost non-existent in uh, lower forms of schooling that we get in the West. And so what we see is this, the Scaligerian timeline being taught. And what is the Scaligerian timeline? Well, it's basically a religiously built chronology at its beginnings anyhow, um, from my point of view.
1: Benedict died at Monte Cassino not long after his sister, Saint Scholastica. Benedict died of a high fever on the day God had told him he was to die and was buried in the same place as his sister. According to tradition, this occurred on March 21st, 543, or perhaps 547. He was named patron protector of Europe by Pope Paul VI in 1964. In 1980, Pope John Paul II declared him co-patron of Europe together with Saints Cyril and Methodius.
0: All right, there's no getting away from this. Um, this begins to show the actual encoding thumbprint. Um, we have the twin idea. Um, Monte Casino is actually Mountain Casino. I would need to look into the roots of the word casino, which I didn't do before the show, unfortunately. But. St. Benedict, you know, is being t- told by God when he's going to die all this, but when does he die? He dies on the day of the vernal equinox in March. There it is, St. Benedict playing the sun. There is no getting away from the encoding in the sun and all this stuff. They took the old religious ideas, and even though they were handing out scriptures for the religion that people were going to follow— they were constantly tracking what is referred to as the acceptable year of the Lord. And as everyone knows, a year is about the sun for us here in the West. um, That's what's being encoded here. Anytime you see equinoxes and solstices play prominently in a historical account, you should be looking more closely. And that really sets aside the idea that St. Scholastica is his twin. So there's almost certainly a crossover into the Gemini signs, if I had to guess. And I am guessing. Anyhow, Jason.
1: Well, God told him when he's going to die, and that sounds like a, an astronomical prediction to me.
0: Yeah, um, I, I just, you know, as I was looking at this, I didn't really want to go down the, the whole encoded road that we just did last time, but it almost looks like it's Gemini to me just from a surface read without looking deeper, because in, in the idea of Gemini, you have Castor and Pollux, and one of them... Is a heavenly godlike being, and the other one's just a mortal. And so you kind of see the juxtaposition here where Benedictine is the vaulty saint. um, And I guess actually Scholastico was sainted too, but you can see how one was prominently served in the church, and the other one was later sainted or something like this. I would have to look at these ideas more closely to make firm. Firm deductions about it, but I don't think there's any getting away from it when you have uh, the same account of twins and then the the preordained God telling him he's going to die and then of course dying exactly on the vernal equinox
1: all right, so there's no direct evidence. That Benedict intended to establish some sort of order. He did, however, lay down what's called the Rule of St. Benedict, a book of precepts for monks living in a community under the authority of an abbot. The Rule opens the book with a preface in which St. Benedict sets forth the main principles of the religious life, the renunciation of one's own will, and arming oneself with the strong and noble weapons of obedience— under the banner of the true king, Christ the Lord. He proposes to establish a school for the Lord's service in which the way to salvation shall be taught, so that by persevering in the monastery till death, his disciples may, through patience, share in the passion of Christ that they may deserve also to share in his kingdom.
0: So here here we have him putting forth these precepts, supposedly, or, you know, the Vatican, certainly, if there was no Benedict. Uh, was behind this, and to some degree what we see over and over and over from the places like the Vatican are texts convincing people to give up their power. Um, And in this case, if you read carefully or listen back to what Jason just said, um, basically what it does is it gets you to subjugate yourself willingly. This is done over and over and over again by ruling families, by religious institutions of the time who were vying for power, who were sending people out all over the world to find every kind of aboriginal settlement they could find and force them over to the religion that they were backing. Um, And that's what I really what really jumps out at me from this bullet point.
1: And we're going to see that big time with the Jesuits the brainwashing is just, man, they're good at it.
0: Well, it's it's crazy when you start to read the historical accounts of the Jesuits and how many they're Supposedly, were even when there's only like six, five or six thousand of them by the historical account, they are all over the world already trying to convert souls. Um, And, you know, basically what it comes down to is they're coming into. Natural communities, which are living in natural ways uh, based on the old ideas that are encoded in so much of this, where there are no clocks, they're looking at the sky, the division of the year is clearly done by natural means, and they come in and they change it all. And it, in most cases, once they begin to do the conversion, language is the next thing that gets put on the chopping block, where they try to decimate the local language and begin to teach people Latin or some other version um, it's basically a takeover is what's going on.
1: Oh, absolutely. That's, that's what these people did. So to finish up with the Benedictines, the first chapter defines four kinds of monks. Cenobites, those in a monastery where they serve under a rule and an abbot. Anchorites, or hermits, who after long successful training in a monastery are now coping single-handedly with only God for their help. Sarabates, living by twos and threes together, or even alone, with no experience, rule, and superior, and thus a law unto themselves. And gyrovags, wandering from one monastery to another, slaves to their own wills and appetites. <laughs> Interesting flowery language, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it's strange the way that um, these got divided down and explained out um, in the historical course of things, but I'll I'll let you just keep pushing, Jason. Let's keep going through the timeline here.
1: Well, this also doesn't sound like something that this guy would have sat down and thought about. This more sounds like what was actually going on and the Catholic Church just said, well, this is what's going on, so we'll label them.
0: Well, you can't have it both ways. If it's if it's true that Benedict was a man and it's true that he did not really want to find found an order called the Benedictine monks, then why the heck would he be writing any of these things down? Um, because basically what's going on here is he's divining, you know, defining the different types of monks that will exist and how they will exist. So you just can't have it both ways.
1: So the last bit on this, one of the big things that these monks are known for is being scribes, copying and recopying texts over the centuries. So doesn't it seem like if there was a huge mock-up of history that they had a ready-made human network to produce the texts needed to validate the falsifications? So let's also not forget that a lot of the stories regarding these saints and other religious figures, as we've been saying, have very science fiction-like stories attached to them that seem just really hard to believe from any modern realistic point of view at all. It just sounds like fictional storytelling retold, but they they validated it by making the texts at some point in the past and then just having them copied and handed out over and over and over again.
0: Right. And one thing that I guess we can agree upon to some degree is in almost any account you can get, whether it's more conspiratorial, more mainstream history, is that the Benedictines were scribes. Um, but there's more to it than that. A lot of these guys spoke multiple languages, some of them supposedly unbelievable numbers of languages. They all spoke Latin. And at this time, you do have these kind of evangelical people going out all over the world. And so it makes perfect sense that these guys would be at the center of writing false histories that came but not only that being able to produce the propaganda that needed to be written in any given language of the people they were dealing with after all we are told that very few people could even read and write in this period of time um so if that is true certainly your average person was not speaking five, six. I mean, Scalinger was claimed to spoke 14 languages. So I think this really begins to place the Benedictine and later the Jesuit idea that we will get into at the center of being the real wheel that moved forward the false writing of history.
1: Yep. So on to the Jesuits. The Jesuit order, also known as the Society of Jesus, was founded by Anigo Lopez de Loyola, who would later be known as Ignatius Loyola, in the 1530s, along with other religious figures known as St. Peter Faber and St. Francis Xavier. It was approved in 1540 by Pope Paul III. Ignatius was the first superior general of the order and held the title of Father General by the Jesuits.
0: So, I mean, there it is. You've already got the military language in place. And as a side thought, uh, what's the name of the head X-Men? Is that Francis Xavier? Is is the lead X-Man named Francis Xavier? (laughs) Charles Xavier. I was wondering about that. But anyhow, uh, from the get go here, uh, they're not pulling any punches this is a militant order um we're going to be told that they report directly to the pope at least at one point as we get on through the history um i'll begin to show the problems with the history we've been handed but at this point they're being founded only reportable to the pope and even their name uh the father general they're getting it's a militia basically is what it is go ahead jason
1: So to break all of this down, Ignatius Loyola was born into an extremely wealthy family in the Basque region of Spain, one of 13 children in 1491. As a young man, he was, according to records, to have been proud, violent, vindictive, and dangerous with the life ambition of becoming a powerful military commander. He was on his way to doing so until a cannonball broke one of his legs and severely wounded the other. This, of course, ended any continuing mainstream career he would have had. He had to undergo numerous surgical operations and spent a long time in recovery.
0: All right, so here's the myth-building of the general, right? The, the top commander of this military organization that's going to be the Pope's personal plaything, uh, for lack of a better term. Go ahead, keep pushing.
1: He is said to have had a nervous breakdown during this time as he struggled to come to terms with the end of his military career and accompanying life's ambitions. So, while being incapacitated, he is said to have begun reading numerous religious texts, especially on the works of Catholic saints. One in particular that inspired him was St. Francis of Assisi, one of the most venerated religious figures in mainstream history, who founded many different orders in the 1200s. Ignatius wanted to emulate St. Francis and began to envision Jesus as a type of great military commander and thought he, he could become a general in Jesus' army instead, the goal of which would be to capture the world.
0: (laughs) So you have this bizarre kind of crossover of ideas here. If you ask the average person, um, is the idea of Jesus or the person of Jesus or the deity of Jesus, is that about peace or is that about military concerns? And I think the average person would probably say it's about peace, but here we have the myth being spun where that idea is being toppled over. And now they're trying to legitimize the idea of having a military wing, um, basically co-opting the idea of jesus and being reportable directly only to the pope it's it's really a conflict it's it's propaganda um you can't have it both ways we'll end up saying this over and over again in this episode i'm sure
1: the idea of having to undergo surgical procedures in the 1500s is terrifying
0: yeah really if anything we've been told is correct it sure would be
1: so once healed enough to make a journey he made his way across spain to the mountains of montserrat where there was a benedictine monastery in this monastery was a sacred goddess idol called the Black Virgin of Montserrat. He stood before this idol in prayer vigil for three days, committing himself and his work to her. This is said by some to actually be a demonic goddess idol, possibly Asherah.
0: Yeah, I don't even know what to do with this. The main, the main thing that I can correspond from this bullet point is, um, is that later on, you're going to see Jesuits referred to as the black pope. Um, But I'm just not sure even what to do with the idea of, you know, demonic possession and all these other things. It's just more kind of myth building and hearsay. I don't know how we ever get there out of this.
1: From here, he decided to go to Jerusalem and conquer the Muslim world for Catholicism. This turned out not to be possible because Barcelona had the plague and he was forced to stay in a small town named Manresa for 10 months. He is said to have lived in a cave during this time, torturing himself physically and mentally until he began having dreams and visions. He claimed that during these hallucination experiences, the sacred doctrine of the Catholic Church was taught to him by a form in the air near him. This comes from a book called Jesuits, a Multi-Biography by Jean Lacouture. This form gave him much consolation because it was exceedingly beautiful. It somehow seemed to have the shape of a serpent and has many things that shone like eyes, but were not eyes. He received much delight and consolation from gazing upon this object. But when the object vanished, he became disconsolate. Now, this sounds like a demonic spiritual vision, very similar to what is claimed by the figure of Muhammad, but a serpent instead of a spirit of light. Ignatius found himself to be depressed after this experience.
0: So you got to ask when you're handed histories like this, um, did Ignatius sit down after all these visions where he was fulfilling the old, you know, hermit in the cave objective, which seemed to be so critical to the time. If you wanted to be an important religious figure, you needed to serve your time up on that mountain in the cave and do the meditation thing and all this other stuff, Um, because here we have two. Uh, The founder of the Jesuit Order and St. Benedict uh, both have done this. But I mean, come on. How does anyone know what he experiences unless um, he sits down and writes it out? Uh, These things are problematic for a person who wants to view the world in some common sense way. Uh, If you want to take a more kind of devil-may-care view of things, then I could maybe understand people reading this and thinking there's some spiritual significance. But on the face of it, it's nonsensical. And when you begin to try to logic out how we would even get accounts like this, it just seems like propaganda. That's where I'm at.
1: Now, this next point sounds about the most realistic out of all of it. He was finally able to get to Jerusalem, where he went to see the Franciscan monks. They told him to go back home, not wanting any political trouble. (laughs)
0: what what does that even mean? So he shows up. He's really not anybody yet, as far as I can tell. And yet when he shows up, the Franciscans recognize that he's political trouble, Um, that the timeline is fractured here in some way.
1: Yeah, it sounds like there's more to it, but that's pretty much what I got out of looking all this stuff up.
0: Well, he's not holding – he's not – you know, he hasn't formed – he's not holding an official position yet. Um, He's clearly supposedly a wealthy person. He's traveling to Montserrat and all these other places. There's a myth woven about him as a child that he's going to be a great military commander, all these other things. But I would just ask, you know, why do the Franciscans think anything of him at this point? But anyhow.
1: Well, the other thing that does make a lot of sense is it says he came from a wealthy family. Okay, that's possible. But the injuries he sustained in battle – would never have healed properly with the kind of medicine and surgical procedures that went up on at this time. So he would have had to have money to really be taken care of to travel properly. I mean, I have, a, I have trouble picturing him walking very far, you know.
0: Well, in the accounts that I read from like the the mainstream stuff from the New York Times bestseller list, you know he's always limping, you know, in all the accounts he's limping they're they're making much fodder of the military injury that he sustained um, these are These are hard things to know man that's that's all I can say um, when you go through the accounts that we 're covering here. A person who wants to look at something with common sense, I mean, this is going to be nothing but trouble for that person. And I'm I'm kind of that person.
1: (laughs) So after this, he began formal theological training at various universities. Along with some companions, he began making disciples of others. In yet another odd spiritual experience, some female followers began acting possessed. Again, from the same text that we read before. One fell senseless. Another sometimes rolled about on the ground. Another had been seen in the grip of convulsions or shuddering and sweating in anguish. Now this sounds like stereotypical demonic possession behavior. Ignatius was known throughout the rest of his life for having mystic
0: powers. Of course he was, man. The man, the myth, the legend. Go ahead. Keep pushing.
1: Twice in his life... Ignatius would be thrown in prison for suspicions of being part of something called the Alumbrados. This term loosely describes practitioners of a mystical form of Christianity in Spain during the 15th and 16th centuries. Some of their views only strayed slightly from the Orthodox teachings, and others were completely heretical to the rulers of the time. They were repressed and became some of the earliest victims of the Spanish Inquisition.
0: So let's stop a minute and talk a little bit about natural things that probably preceded uh, the rewriting of the modern narrative, which probably the Jesuits and the Benedictines were involved in, if there is any accuracy to any of the history we get. Um, I would point out that there was a time when natural healing took place. It is openly documented that the Vatican and other places began to call these people, a lot of them female, witches. They weren't witches at all in the way we think of them today in the derisive use of that term. They were simply people using older methods uh, uh, in in conjunction with nature to do healing, birthing, midwifing, these types of things. As we've shown so often, um, the encoding of alchemy, the path of the sun, and these older natural ways were encoded right over into the religious doings of places like the Vatican and in a lot of cases the scriptures that still exist today. And so I think we're looking at a real break point here if there is any accuracy to this timeline. Um and I'm guessing, you know, the best we can do is Middle Ages, is that what we're seeing is the Vatican recognizing that if they literally control the narrative in every way and get people to buy into things that are not as helpful as the things that that, that were already known at the time, they could really begin to take over the game. And that's my best guess at what we're witnessing uh, as we go through these probably mostly fictional timelines.
1: All right, so by 1534... Ignatius had six loyal companions he had met at university, and this group formed the initial military brotherhood known as the Society of Jesus. Ignatius created the society with the discipline and principles drawn from his military background— He demanded unquestioning obedience from his farriers like an army infrastructure. Thus, Ignatius Loyola became the first superior general of the order, and they began the work of opposing the Protestant Reformation and reestablishing the complete dominance of the Catholic Church,
0: not only in Europe, but around the world. So the main thing that has always struck me about whatever account you want to read about the forming of the Jesuit order, is we're taking this idea of Jesus, you know, someone hit you in the face, turn the other cheek, that kind of Prince of Peace idea, and now we're mixing it with a military brotherhood who is reportable only to the Pope. Um, It's a complete juxtaposition of ideas. And I've already said it too many times in this episode, you can't have it both ways. Are we talking about a religion that is basically around humanitarian ideas in things like turn the other cheek, which is attributed to Jesus? Or are we talking about something else? And clearly we're being shown a history here where for some reason the military is being mixed in with the religion.
1: Yeah, pretty much so making their way to rome the society was accepted by pope the third in 1540. the pope saw the need for a military order to fight back against the progress the protestant reformation was making the pope invested in the order the following authorities excommunicate all who would hinder or do not aid the society to confer orders preach and administer the sacraments to change their general, to absolve heretics, as well as imprison the excommunicate, to exercise episcopal episcopal functions, to confirm, exercise, dispense, etc., to disguise themselves, to carry movable altars, give plenary indulgences, to live exempt, free from secular powers, taxes, as well as jurisdiction, authority sentence, and command of any other ordinary delegate, judge, magistrate, from any search." So basically, they were given the authority by the Catholic Church to operate above the law as they see fit to do their work. This eventually made them the most powerful weapon of the Catholic Church against the Protestant Reformation.
0: So, I mean, here on the face of it, if if ideas is what we're talking about here, the, the Catholic, what's acceptable uh, in, a, in a spiritual view from Rome or the Catholic Church, and then the Protestant Reformation, uh, basically what you're seeing here is these guys given carte blanche to go do anything they can in their power to knock down this other idea coming up. Um, I don't know. The more I try to logic out if any of this is real, if there is any real substance— We kind of assume that there was a Protestant, you know, reformation and these other things. But did they happen in the way that we think they did? I just don't know. Um, As I go into the histories and and the acceptable mainstream histories, I find more problems than solutions. But at the base of what you're seeing here in the acceptable history is that. There was a new idea in town which was threatening the old idea, so they made basically a bunch of ninjas and said, go out and do your ninja work to do anything you can to undermine this new idea.
1: Yeah, here's the thing. I'm pretty sure the Protestant Reformation happened because obviously we have Protestants today, and there was on record a lot of documented fighting. So it seems that there was something going on, but again, you're, you, you may be right that it's not. it didn't go down the way that mainstream history tells us.
0: It's just it's hard to know um, the, the the real problem here, and I've said it a lot of times. When things truly exist in the world, we should be able to know things about it. The problem here is is that as so much time supposedly goes by, um, it, it gets harder and harder to do this. But when you look at the accounts, they don't logically balance on a ledger. Um, there's too many problems with other things we know. And yeah, I agree there was a Protestant Reformation of some kind. But what I don't agree about is that we have any real accurate accounting of what that would have been about.
1: The Protestant Reformation actually makes sense to me because it's quite obvious that the Catholic Church was tyrannical, and I'm sure some people who just wanted to be good Christians as they saw it didn't want anything to do with these people, you know?
0: Well, I'll tell you what, I spent a heck of a lot of time in Protestant churches being brought up as a child, um, even into my young adult life. And um, I would invite anyone, go look at the history of Martin Luther. And I mean look at the history. Don't just take the mainstream whitewashed versions. Take a close look at what you're being told happened. And if you're a logical person, um, you're going to begin to find problems. And so, you know, while that doesn't tell us everything we'd like to know, I would point out that, yeah, there is absolutely Protestant movements all over this world. They had to have begun somewhere. But again, when we look at the history we're given even on Martin Luther – There's all these problems immediately, at least for me, anyhow. But anyhow, back to you, Jason.
1: So Ignatius Loyola wrote down and enforced what he called the spiritual exercises based off of the teachings and experiences he had had in the cave in Manresa. He made a template of what he had done to summon the serpent form and then passed this on to his followers. This formed the foundation of his entire movement and all Jesuits had to go through them in order to bring themselves to the same kind of mindset that he had after 10 months in the cave. This included systematic meditation, prayer, contemplation, vis- visualization, and illuminating or illuminization leading to a trance-like state of ecstasy. By following these rituals, it was said that followers were actually seen to levitate off of the floor at times. The initiation was said to take 30 days and was led by a supervisor. The initiate would be told the entire time what to think, how to feel, when to groan, when to sigh, what to imagine, and to cut off all normal human emotions throughout the experiences. The idea that by the end of the 30 days, the initiate's mind would be broken, very similar to boot camp, I would suggest, so that he would be totally obedient in all things. An observer of these rituals wrote the following. Not only visions were prearranged, but also sights, inhalings, breathing was noted down. The pauses and intervals of silence were written down like a music sheet, which meant that the man, being inspired or not, became a machine who had to sigh, sob, groan, cry, shout, or catch his breath at the exact moment and in the order which experience showed to be the most profitable. Using this method, Loyola only needed 30 days to break someone's will and
0: reasoning. So again, in this bullet point, I see two opposing ideas and the kind of opening part of it. It almost seems like it's referencing an older tradition, more of an alchemical, more of a meditation type tradition that preceded what we consider to be modern Western religion or Catholicism or Christianity of some form. And by the end of this bullet point, uh, what it seems like is that's been pushed aside and we're basically talking about brainwashing, which is quite quite analogous to what goes on in boot camp so there it is from my point of view well
1: they're kind of combining the concept of the great work of alchemy the the spiritual construction of yourself to a higher point and then basically ripping that away and turning it into brainwashing
0: Right. Um, You know, I agree with that kind of, except that, you know, we're completely devoid of any mention of nature in any way. When you first start to describe uh, from this account, it really does seem like it's kind of like the yogi uh, meditating in the cave. But by the time we get to the end, it seems way more militaristic where they're taking the privates and brainwashing them to become the soldiers they need to be.
1: Right. And, And this next point really drives that home. The Jesuit Constitution states that the Jesuit must give instant compliance to, bo- to those above them in the hierarchy. This completely sacrifices their own will in the process. Their superiors, of course, are said to be acting under divine providence. The Constitution also states that the superior general is acting in the place of Jesus Christ. The Jesuit is taught to
0: seek Jesus in their general. So this is a weird thing because in the mainstream accounts, what we're told is when the Jesuits were founded, they were reportable solely to the Pope. Um, And that Loyola, you know, part of that loyal in his name was because he was supposedly just that, completely dedicated to the Pope, to the point where even if the Pope was saying something he didn't agree with um, or something he was against, it didn't matter. That was his reason for being, and he was going to be wholeheartedly. So that's one of the mainstream historical accounts of the Jesuits were given. But again, that falls apart later in the story when the Pope disbands them, when countries are kicking them out wholesale. And we'll get to that when we get to that. But I would point out, um, you know, you're showing you can't have it both ways again. Are these guys reporting to the pope or are they reporting to their superior general? In other words, is this really work they're doing for the Vatican, the head of the Vatican, a man called the pope? Or is this more of a military organization where the general's just doing what he will? Uh, in the mainstream accounts, that general is not doing what he will at this point in the game. Anyhow, he is basically the right hand of the Pope, and nothing more, nothing less. So there it is.
1: Well, the Pope is also supposed to be acting as a place marker for, for Jesus, is, is he not?
0: That was my point, because you were saying, you know, they're seeking Jesus through their general. Well, you know, what is the Pope? By his own, you know, by his own account, he is the vicar of Christ in this world and claims his authority— in a supposed unbroken line back to St. Peter. And so, you know, these are the ideas that are put forward by the Vatican, and that's the real problem in what we're seeing here. you see, the, there can only be one vicar of Christ, I guess, according to the Vatican, and that's the Pope. So, you know, these people are seeking Jesus through the general. It just, it doesn't, you can't have it both ways. Either at this young point in the Jesuit history, they truly are the right arm of the Pope and reportable only to the Pope and doing whatever the heck the Pope needs done, or it's something else. And this bullet point would suggest that it's something else.
1: Right. Now, to sum up the way this whole hierarchy works and what at in fact, may actually be demanded of a Jesuit. We can tell you to sin in Jesus' name, and that makes it okay if the end justifies the means or if it leads to the greater glory of God. And again, whatever that may mean.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, we can we could actually go in and show oaths where they're saying they're going to kill people if they're commanded to do so. Well, what about the Ten Commandments? You see, it's a constant juxtaposition of what we are expected to think is correct about these religions, and then what these people who are supposedly the authorities within the religion are doing, And let me tell you something. The left hand is not doing what the right hand is doing. Um, You know, if the average person who was going to read the 10 commandments and think, Hey man, there's real value here. I'm going to model my life on this. I'm going to try to do the best I can. I'm not going to kill people. I'm not going to covet my, you know, all these things. Well, here's a group that's, you know, basically the right hand of the vicar of Christ. And in some of their oaths, they're basically say we will kill anyone that's not Catholic if we're commanded to do so. But uh, it goes on and on and on. It just, it's it's completely without logic right
1: now this next bit it's never been completely confirmed whether this really is the oath that they take but and there there's a lot to this so i'm going to go through it and make of it as you will but go into this understanding this may or may not be 100% accurate some people swear up and down that this is really what goes on some folks say this is total rubbish
0: well i would i would add jason i've used this before um, the real problem here is it's very difficult to find any source of the original print of what you're about to read. But it is absolutely posted everywhere as as a real thing. So again, you're right. It's hard to know. Go ahead.
1: So this is supposed to be the Jesuit extreme oath of induction given to high ranking Jesuits only. This oath is taken from the book Subterranean Rome by Carlos Didier, translated from the French and published in New York in 1843. When a Jesuit of the minor rank is to be elevated to command, he is conducted into the chapel of the Convent of the Order, where there are only three others present, the principal or superior standing in front of the altar. On either side stands a monk, one of whom holds a banner of yellow and white, which are the papal colors, and the other a black banner with a dagger and red cross above a skull and crossbones with the word inri, and below them the words Iustum, nicar, reges, impius the meaning of which is, it is just to exterminate or annihilate impious or heretical kings, governments, or rulers. Upon the floor is a red cross at which the postulant or candidate kneels. The superior hands him a small black crucifix, which he takes in his left hand and presses to his heart. And the superior at the same time presents to him a dagger, which he grasps by the blade and holds the point against his heart. The superior still holding it by the hilt, And thus addresses the postulant. My son, heretofore you have been taught to act the dissembler among Roman Catholics to be a Roman Catholic and to be a spy, even among your own brethren, to believe no man, to trust no man among the reformers to be a reformer among the Huguenots to be a Huguenot among the Calvinists to be a Calvinist among other Protestants generally to be a Protestant and obtaining their confidence to seek even to preach from their pulpits and to denounce with all the vehemence in your nature our holy religion and the Pope, and even to descend so low as to become a Jew among Jews that you might be enabled to gather together all information for the benefit of your order as a faithful soldier of the Pope. You have been taught to insidiously plant the seeds of jealousy and hatred between communities, provinces, states that were at peace, and incite them to deeds of blood involving them in war with each other, and to create revolutions and civil wars in countries that were independent and prosperous, cultivating the arts and the sciences and enjoying the blessings of peace. To take sides with the combatants and to act secretly with your brother Jesuit, who might be engaged on the other side, but openly opposed to that with which you might be connected, only that the church might be the gainer in the end, in the conditions fixed in the treaties for peace, and that the end justifies the means. You have been taught your duty as a spy to gather all statistics, facts, and information in your power from every source, to ingratiate yourself into the confidence of the family circle of Protestants and heretics of every class and character, as well as that of the merchant, the banker, the lawyer, among the schools and universities, in parliaments and legislatures, and the judiciaries and councils of state, and to be all things to all men for the Pope's sake, whose servants we are unto death. You have received all your instructions heretofore as a novice, a neophyte, and have served as co Confessor and priest but you have not yet been invested with all that is necessary to command in the army of loyola in the service of the pope you must serve the proper time as the instrument and executioner as directed by your superiors for none can command here who has not consecrated his labors with the blood of the heretic for without the shedding of blood no man can be saved Therefore, to fit yourself for your work and make your own salvation sure, you will, in addition to your former oath of obedience to your order and allegiance to the Pope, repeat after me. Now, this sounds really wordy to me, and even longer than the Freemasonic rituals that we know about.
0: Yeah, um... (laughs) <laughs> you're, you're pointing out the conundrum, aren't you, Jason? Um, I have seen what the oath that you're about to go over here printed in a heck of a lot of places. The one thing I did when I used it in a previous episode, I think in the intro, was I tried to actually get my hands on a printed copy that was supposedly whatever it was, 1843. I've forgotten uh, that this was translated from French and then uh, published in New York, and I could not find a copy of it. But I found endless references to the book, which led me to believe the book probably did exist exist. And if the book did exist, um, it was either printed to put out lies or it was telling the truth and no one's challenged it. Not not sure what to make of it.
1: Right. And do you even want me to go through all this oath?
0: You know, there, there's no there's no real reason. Basically what it comes down to is the oath is telling someone um, you're going to do whatever you're told. As a matter of fact, you will kill a baby. You will take a baby out of a mother's arms. You will crush a man's skull if you are directed to do so by the pope. Uh, in the oath, there's a lot of direct correspondence to having been directed to do these things by the pope at the end of the day this is a hell of a long oath i don't see a reason that we need to read the whole thing jason but it you know i can ask a simple question here does this sound like we're talking about religion Like the spiritual endeavors of helping someone reach a higher spiritual plane, or does this seem like we're talking about kings and queens and guillotines? You see where I'm going here?
1: Absolutely. And what I take from all of this is that this almost sounds very Freemasonic to me because when you go through this oath, and it's out there, folks, just go Google it. You'll find it very easily. It's extremely Freemasonic, especially when you get to the end with the questions and the answers that you have to repeat and all that. That's very Freemasonic. So this very well could have been fiction, and someone drew from Freemasonic rituals or other secret society type rituals just because it's so wordy. I have uh, trouble believing that these people memorized this much stuff. Not saying that they couldn't, but it, it just seems unlikely. It's, it's...
0: well, I, I, I guess I don't have that problem with it, but I'll say this. In the episode where we were showing um, the Masonic encoding uh, through the Vatican, they used the INRI or NRI at the top of the cross to encode Masonic passwords. Here in the opening to this, you're absolutely drawing the parallel. You're being told that NRI was recorded, was encoded into Iustum Necor Regis Impius. In the case of the previous encoding of the INRI at the top of Jesus' cross, it was encoding the names of archangels, which ended up being passwords, but not only passwords, they related directly to the alchemical four elements, uh, the old alchemical ideas. You know, Jason, I think the main thing, and, and people should look up the Jesuit Oath. The main thing here when we're looking at these things is I think we have to break it down in ways we can simply think about it and for me it becomes is there anything in any of this that that makes me feel like we're looking at a spiritual endeavor and my answer is no it looks like you're looking at military operations to gain power um that's what i see
1: now they almost seem like they're a secret spy ring with with a you know militaristic slant you know they're they're taught complete and utter obedience to your superior, and you're going to go do whatever we tell you to do, period. So my take, since we're at the top of the hour here, to to wrap this part up, it's whether or not this oath specifically is accurate or not, it would appear that the intention of the Jesuits is to infiltrate whatever organizations are considered an enemy of the Catholic Church and destroy it from within.
0: And again, you know, what's this due to any historical timeline we have? Um, It would jack it up if on the face of it it was true. We would have no way to know that if some of the main Calvinist leaders weren't actually Jesuit spies or basically ninjas. And in an earlier portion of this, it's flat out saying, you're not ready for command as a Jesuit because you haven't taken heretic blood yet. Um, One of the things you're going to have to do is kill a heretic to even be considered for command. Uh, It goes on and on and on. But anyhow, Jason, that does bring us— right up to the top of the first hour is there anything you want to add
1: well in hour two we're going to go even heavier into what the jesuits have done i mean there's a lot of historical evidence that suggests that these people were some bad bad folks they did some nasty stuff and and it's pretty proven that they did get thrown out of later on every country that they were a part of just about you know and that just just kind of says exactly what you just said that uh this isn't a spiritual organization for the betterment of humankind they were a subversive organization
0: yeah, but they were reportable to the highest guy of the organization. So what would that say about the entire Catholic Church if any of this is true? And that's one thing that struck me in the main mainstream timelines is, yeah, all the big countries, France, Spain, Portugal, the list goes on, boot these guys out at one point. In the second hour, we'll end up covering that even the pope disbands them at one point. So here's an organization – whose complete military existence is to serve the Pope and no one else. And at one point, the Pope says, you guys are done. So what do they do? They go to Russia and Prussia because there's a loophole where they can keep existing, which on the face of it is a problem because then who are they reporting to? They're supposed to be reporting to the Pope. And everywhere else there were Jesuits, they just simply changed their name. Uh, All these logical problems. But we'll get into this in the second hour, Jason. That brings episode 65, first hour to a close. We hope that you join us over at Crow 777 Radio for the second hour. We're going to go through quite a bit that really challenges the historical timeline of Jesuits we've been handed, uh, just using logic to break it down, to even consider whether the things were being told are possible. Anyhow, there it is, cheers.